Father, we pause to pray right now and ask for your help because we certainly stand in need of it. Lord, any time we, we open the scriptures, we, um, we provoke you uh, if we don't come humbly and request your illumination and your help. Lord, we are so thankful that you are eager to give it to us and that you are um, mighty with your word. You are good at getting things done with the scriptures and the preaching of the gospel. And so we invite you into this place right now. Grant us that gift of illumination. Help us to see wonderful things in your word this morning as we consider uh, the example of Mary before us. Lord, we want to be prepared. We want to be one step more prepared this week in Advent season. Every heart ought to prepare him room for the coming king. And so do that now. Create worship in this place. Create awe as we consider uh, what you have for us today in Luke chapter 1. Come now and manifest the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask, for the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This time, it's my privilege to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. If you'd like to use one of the red Bibles from underneath the seats today, today's text begins on page 855 in the red Bibles, 855. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Somebody were to ask you the question, quick, tell me the first disciple of Jesus. What, right off the bat, what answer would you give them? Um, your answer probably would have a lot to do with which gospel account your mind shifts to out of neutral. Um, for example, if you just move right to the gospel of John, then you would be correct in thinking, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are the first disciples of the Lord, and you'd be right if we were consulting the Gospel of John. But if your mind immediately shifts to Mark's Gospel, for instance, you might name John the Baptist as Jesus' first disciple, although John is more maybe traditionally thought of as a, as a forerunner to Jesus than his disciple. Uh, John certainly was a, a worshiper of Jesus and, and a follower of his as well. But as we've learned, Luke's gospel starts further back and relating the events surrounding Jesus' birth, in this case, the answer to the question is that Jesus' own mother is the first disciple of the Lord. It's Mary. Mary is the first disciple of Jesus. And not only that, but in our text this morning, we're going to learn that Mary is the first evangelist. She's the first bearer of the good news, one human being to another. Now that only stands to reason because of what Jesus says in Mark 1.17. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. If you had to be forced to choose between being a disciple or an evangelist, which should you choose? Well, Mark 1.17 makes the answer really simple for us. I, I hope you you know it by heart because it's written above our, our coffee bar in Fellowship Hall. Jesus says that you don't have to decide between those two. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. You hear the rhythm of that? There's a stone-cold promise attached to the command. Follow me and I 
will make you become fishers of men. So if you had to be forced to choose between being a disciple and evangelist, that's easy. Choose disciple. Because if you choose disciple, you get evangelist thrown in. Karl Barth once said, the goal isn't so much to get to the people, but as to come from Christ. When one comes from Christ, one automatically gets to the people. If you choose disciple of Jesus, you get evangelism thrown in. See, the mission of this church is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And those eight words aren't just a mission, they're actually a philosophy of ministry. It's the two-beat rhythm of Scripture. We see it everywhere. Uh, Enjoy the gospel yourself and entrust the gospel to others. That's 2 Timothy 2.2. Or give God your ears and give others his words. That's Isaiah 50 verse 4. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, what? Speaks. Luke 6.45. We can say it other ways too, though. What we grow in the fields is what we load on the trucks. (laughs) You can only export what you are manufacturing. You can only serve what's in your cupboard. Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Nevertheless, J.I. Packer wonderfully observes this. Quote, for many of us, personal evangelism is the reverse of easy, and it becomes a task we evade. But Christianity is for sharing, and Christians who love their neighbors want to do that. Amen? So here's the big idea today. This Advent season, let's not make evangelism any more complicated than it has to be. This Advent season, let's not make evangelism any more complicated than it has to be. So here's the first of two points today. Number one, like Mary, receive the good news of the coming King. Like Mary, receive the good news of the coming King. Would you follow along with me as we read from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. This Advent season, let's not make evangelism any more complicated than it has to be. Like Mary, receive the good news. 
of the coming king. Verse 26 tells us that in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, the word city here uh, overstates the case. It's, it's an over-translation. Uh, to translate it that way runs the risk of communicating something about Nazareth that was just not true by, by our standards, namely that it was some sort of bustling metropolis. We wouldn't, wouldn't use the word city in this day. Uh, Nazareth was hardly a city by those standards. Uh, Hicktown might be the more appropriate term for Nazareth. Um, Nazareth was tiny. It was a couple of thousand people at, at best at this point. Um, it existed in the time of the Old Testament, but it's so insignificant, it's not named in the Old Testament. Remember Nathaniel's question to Philip in John 1.46? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? This is a gracious reminder to our church here in the city of Mound. Mound is the Nazareth of Lake Minnetonka. We ain't Wyzetta or Minnetonka Beach or Excelsior or Orono. Can anything good come out of Mound? I once heard somebody say that if you think you're too small to be effective, then you clearly have never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> Can small things be effective? Yes. We are an ordinary church, I grant that. But we serve an extraordinary Christ, don't we? And it's true, the angel Gabriel visited Zechariah the priest in Jerusalem at the temple. True. But he also came to this out-of-the-way, unimportant little hamlet called Nazareth. Encouraging, isn't it? We're never told Mary's age. In verse 27, it says that she's a virgin betrothed to be married to a man named Joseph. Betrothal in first century Jewish culture could occur for a, a young girl as early as age 12. We don't know her age, but Mary is a young girl. That coupled with the fact that an angel shows up to her doorstep to greet her goes a long way toward explaining this young lady's anxiety. Uh, starting in verse 28, Gabriel tells her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now, at this point, what's true of Mary is true of, of every last person here who knows the grace of God in their lives, who's been born again. Twice in those verses, Gabriel tells Mary that she is favored. And if you're a Christian, that is true of you too because the Greek word here is charis. You may know the other English word that's more frequently translated in the New Testament as, and that would be grace. Mary, you are graced. One New Testament scholar put it this way, Mary is a picture of those who receive God's grace on the basis of his kind initiative. That was no less true of Mary. Prior to Mary's faith is the activity of God's grace. Same with you and me. Faith is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8. Faith is granted to us, says Philippians chapter 1. There's a reason we speak of salvation by grace through faith, because it's in that order. That's the way it happened for Mary, too. Mary's faith is remarkable, but it's only possible by means of the gracious initiative of God. And then in verses 31 to 33, what follows is the first announcement of the good news of Jesus Christ in the entire gospel 
of Luke. This is the gospel according to Gabriel. Now, let's take a look, starting in verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you should call his name Jesus, and he will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, that is the gospel according to Gabriel. Is that the gospel according to you? It ought to be. Now, granted, there's more to the gospel, particularly the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We grant that. But there's not less than this to the gospel. Remember Paul's words in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared So the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, those are all non-negotiable truths of the gospel. They're they're part of the good news, no doubt. And yet here in Luke 1, 31 to 33, we have Gabriel insisting on where all of that is headed. Namely, to the reign of Jesus over the house of Jacob from the throne of his father David. That's the part that we tend to leave out in our gospel presentations. This is what Mary understands. This is the language that Mary can speak. This is her hope. And it was the hope of every pious Jew in the first century, of whom there may have been just a handful, as we see in Luke's gospel, but there were some who were hoping for this. The reign and the rule of Messiah, not just over Israel, but over all of the nations from Jerusalem. The Old Testament bears consistent witness to these royal promises. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God tells King David... Through the prophet Nathan, he says, When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then hundreds of years after King David, we read in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 9, that the Jews shall serve the Lord their God and David their king hundreds of years after the death of Jesus. They shall serve David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Or Ezekiel 34, 24, again, many years after King David, God says, my servant David shall be prince among them. I, I am the Lord, I have spoken. Ezekiel 37, 24 says, my servant David shall be king over them. Finally, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5 promises, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So this is the consistent and unbending testimony of the Bible and the Hebrew Scriptures in particular, that God's forever king is coming to Israel. As Gabriel says in Luke 1.32 of Mary's child, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And not incidentally, which family line does Joseph come from in verse 27? David. Joseph of the house of David. Now, without a doubt, what many Jews missed in the first century that was this, that for Jesus, before the crown comes the cross. Before the coronation was to come the crucifixion. 
how many times uh, did the Jews make the mistake that there would be no suffering prior to the glory of the Messiah? And yet, how many times do we make the reverse mistake today, dwelling on the sufferings of Christ, but not the glories to come? If Mary understood anything when she received the good news of the angel Gabriel, it's that she was going to give birth to a king, to the Messiah, to the Christ. And she expected a king. How often we focus on Christ's cross to the exclusion of his crown. How frequently we turn our own thoughts toward the crucifixion of Jesus, but not the coming coronation of Jesus. For Mary, for the angel Gabriel, the Messiah, he's the promised ruler of her people who would in turn one day rule the nations. It changes the whole flavor of your evangelism if you think of Jesus in this way, as the ruler of the world, the coming king. And like Mary, we are encouraged now to receive the good news of this coming king. And if you're with us this morning, I wonder, have you? Is this a gift that you have opened this Christmas season? This morning you have that opportunity. Jesus lived a a perfect life and he died a sacrificial sin-bearing death on the cross. He was raised again on the third day, the Bible tells us, and he's ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. And the Bible says he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. In fact, our text says he will rule over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. You may know that Jesus died on a cross and that he was raised from the grave on the third day, but are you looking forward Are you anticipating the day, according to Philippians 2, 10, and 11, that says at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, he's king, to the glory of God the Father. Like Mary, receive the good news of the coming king. Now, the virgin conception of Jesus is clearly taught in verses 34 and 35. Um, Typically, during Advent season, we do a a pretty deep dive into the virgin birth and think through that doctrine. I'll spend a little bit less time on that this morning, except to say this, and we know this from if you've studied the Free Church Statement of Faith with us over this last season, we believe in the virgin birth in this church. We don't bat an eyelash at this doctrine. Why do we believe it? We believe it because of what verse 37 says, that nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. 17th century poet and commentator Katharina Regina von Griffenberg wrote this, nothing is impossible for God except something impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. This is why she's a poet. He could make the mountains into pearls, turn the stars into tinsel, and the sea into flames. He could make jewels grow on trees. He could make nature turn around and create a new thing that as yet was unnatural to us, and yet it would become natural. Nothing is impossible for God. And although though Mary is as perplexed as the day is long about how this is going to be accomplished, that's what's going on in verse 38. She doesn't know how he's going to do this. She knows how biology works. Yet we hear the faith of this girl loud and clear. 
Verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. The first point is for all of us today. Like Mary, receive the good news of the coming King. Second point today is for all of us in the sanctuary who have received the good news and you're seeking to be an ambassador for Christ this season. This Advent season, let's not make evangelism any more complicated than it has to be. Like Mary, relay the good news of the coming King. Like Mary, relay the good news of the coming King. Would you follow along with me once more and we'll read from Luke's Gospel, this time chapter 1, verses 39 to 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this been granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Like Mary, relay the good news of the coming king. And you notice there's just nothing sophisticated about this, the aim of this sermon. Receive the Savior relay the Savior. Let's keep it simple. Believe the good news and belt out the good news. Isn't that what Mary's up to here? Verse 39 sets the tone for the rest of our text. In those days, Mary arose. It's the word for resurrection in the Bible, by the way, Anastasio. She arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Mary arose and went with what? Haste speed, swiftness. This young gal bustled her way to Judah. Now remember, she's pregnant, and not only that, but from Nazareth, we're talking about a journey of 80 to 100 miles here. This is a three to four day trek for Mary. What's the hurry? News. (laughs) She's got news. Do you think this way about the gospel? Have you grown accustomed to the grace of God in your life? Is this the way that evangelism works for you? The reformer John Wigand wrote this, Quickly, 
With this word, the evangelist reveals the disposition of the virgin. She did not wander around or linger out on the road, but rather she hurried along the way so that she might come sooner to her dear relative, for the faith was ardent and fervent with her. I ask you this morning, is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, is the faith ardent and fervent with you this morning? Unless or until it is, evangelism will always seem like a chore. And just think, just think of what Mary would have missed out on if she hadn't gone to see Elizabeth. Uh, This paragraph, verses 39 to 45, contains one of the sweetest and most surprising exchanges in the entire Bible. And to think none of it would have happened if Mary hadn't gone in haste to the hill country of Judah. Verse 41 is extraordinary. Look at it with me. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. What does she encounter here? Something very beautiful. John has just completed his second trimester, and he's worshiping Jesus. He hears the voice of the mother of the Lord, and he's worshiping. That's the way that Elizabeth takes it anyway in verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So, I mean, you see what's going on here. Mary comes to visit her relative, Elizabeth, who Gabriel told her would already be in her sixth month of pregnancy. Miraculous as that conception was, Mary wanted to see the remarkable sight, and she hardly gets her greeting out. And she's met by two eager worshipers of Jesus, Elizabeth, and her son, who is still in the womb. John's jumping around worshiping Jesus, and Elizabeth refers to Jesus as the Lord. Don't miss that. The mother of my Lord, my King, in verse 43. This is worship. This is Zechariah's house, of course. And we hear in Elizabeth's commendation of Mary... Um, in verse 45, also echoes of her own husband's unbelief. This is remarkable, actually. Verse 45, Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It's almost the mirror opposite of what Gabriel said to Zechariah in last week's text, in verse 20. You did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time." Now, in verse 46, we hear from Mary. Verses 46 to 55 of Luke chapter 1 contain what we call the Magnificat. We draw the title, of course, from verse 46, where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. Magnificat is a Latin translation of the the Greek term here, or the English word magnify also is, is built within it. Verse 46, My soul magnifies the Lord. It's a song of praise that Mary speaks to the Lord, and she does it right here in the presence of Elizabeth. Elizabeth is listening. I think we learn something here about the nature and the root structure and the content of evangelism if we look closely. Mary is the first evangelist. Let's not forget that. She's worshiping, and she's not just communicating religious data to Elizabeth. She is thoroughly enjoying her Savior. She can't be stopped. Not a whiff of fear or anxiety here, too, by the way, for this gal. 
It's because she's not focused on herself. Or how she might be received by Elizabeth, for that matter. Uh, 18th century preacher Charles Simeon comments this way, Not a single word savoring of self-exaltation escapes her lips. I agree. She's outward. She's not inward focused. Listen to the radical God-centeredness, again, of Mary's words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And here's all the reasons why. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who has done mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength with his arm and has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever. Now, there's no way to cover all of it, of course, in this, this final point, but let's at least begin to see how this song fits together and how it could be a major league encouragement for us in our evangelism this Advent season. This song is bursting with Old Testament scripture, from Genesis to Deuteronomy, from Ezra to Job, from the Psalms to Isaiah to Habakkuk to Micah. But the prayer, which was read for us earlier before the worship or before the, the sermon here uh, of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it's this prayer that Mary's Magnificate reflects most significantly. And when you read side by side Hannah's prayer and and Mary's Magnificat, the words of these two women sound like they're, they're doing a, a, a worship duet to the glory of God. Mary's song in particular comes to us in three movements. We'll look at each movement and make three evangelistic applications here. Here's the first way I'd summarize the first movement, verses 46 to 49. Mary's evangelism is deeply personal. Mary's evangelism is deeply personal. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. The whole flavor of this first movement is captured in the first five words. My soul magnifies the Lord. Mary's soul becomes an instrument for the magnification of God. And don't mistake Mary's soul for a microscope here, making something infinitesimally small look a whole lot bigger than it actually is. Mary's soul is not a microscope. It's a telescope, making something that is stunningly big appear closer at hand. Mary sings of the salvation and the strength and the holiness of God because they are realities that she experienced very intimately. She's not reading from a theology text here. She is talking to Elizabeth about her personal first-hand experience of the Lord. How about you? Does evangelism work that way for you? Is it that natural? Horatius Bonar once wrote, Our power in drawing men and women to Christ springs chiefly from our fullness of personal joy in him. Is that true of you? 
Mary's evangelism was deeply personal. Like we said on the front end of the sermon, you serve what's in your cupboard. Mary's evangelism was deeply personal. Second movement of the Magnificat, found here in verses 50 to 53. Here's what we learn in this section. It's an observation. Mary's evangelism is filled with reversal. Mary's evangelism is filled with reversal. Look at this again. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich, he sent away empty. Now, this dawned on me this morning, looking at this text. If you frequently find yourself stuck or discouraged in your evangelistic efforts with other people, please listen closely to me. Mary sees the good news of the coming king. She relays the good news of her Savior in her womb as a series of turnabouts, uh, as, as a bunch of 180s, reversals that can and will ultimately take place because of the coming of the Messiah. He has scattered the proud. He's brought down the mighty. He's exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry and sent the rich away empty. In other words, Jesus is a change agent in the current state of affairs in this world. This is a theme that runs straight through Luke's gospel, and it should be shot through all of our evangelistic endeavors. It's what helps move you out of neutral into first gear, I think. For instance, when we think about evangelism, how many of you, when you seek to commend Christ to other people, uh, you run into folks who just appear bulletproof? You know what I mean? Uh, it just, just seems like they... They have the world by the tail. They, they don't appear to lack anything materially, relationally. They're just living the dream out here in Lake Minnetonka, right? Jesus just doesn't seem to fit into their lives. Well, this text here reminds us to go ahead and press ahead anyway in evangelism because there's going to come a day, because the Bible says it's true, when he will scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He will bring down the mighty from their thrones. And this text encourages us to move forward in evangelism, especially when the person in front of us does not appear to ail from the condition which the great physician offers the only cure. And of course, these verses can run in the other direction as well, and they do. His mercy is for those who fear him. He exalts those of humble estate. He fills the hungry with good things. And know these verses aren't a carte blanche guarantee for health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. They aren't. But they do offer hope to those for whom it seems like life has just kicked the tar out of them. And they don't know hope at all. I was having lunch several months ago. I may have told this story before, but with a friend of mine at Scotty B's who doesn't know the Lord. And I just asked him, I said, what, what gives you hope these days? You know what he said to me? Nothing. Nothing gives me hope these days. He fills the hungry with good things. He gives hope to those who are hopeless. Jerry Bridges once said, 
On your worst days, you are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you are never beyond your need for God's grace. That's what the second movement is all about. Mary's evangelism is filled with reversal. It creates opportunities, I think, in evangelism. Third and final movement in this remarkable song is expressed in verses 54 to 55. Verses 54 to 55, he has helped the servant, his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Here's one last observation. Mary's evangelism is focused on Israel. This is unapologetically nationalistic flavor here. He has helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So this last observation is just for all of us who the Apostle Paul would refer to as a wild olive shoot. If you're not a Jew and you love Jesus, this is you. A wild olive shoot grafted into the olive tree of Jesus among the natural branches of Israel. Romans 11 verses 17 and 18. Let us not be ignorant of the place of Israel in God's mission today. Let us not be arrogant toward Israel as we engage in God's mission today. In this day and age in the 21st century American church, we are in absolutely no danger of placing too great a focus on Israel in the course of our evangelistic endeavors, I assure you. I do believe, though, that we may certainly be in danger of placing little to no emphasis at all on Israel, which would have just been completely foreign to Mary and to the Jews of the first century. Jesus is their Messiah, after all. Especially if Mary's, in view of Mary's last word here in the Magnificat, how, how long is God's favor going to land on Israel? What's the last word of the Magnificat? Forever. Forever. God's love for Israel remains. It remains to this day and will be present forever into eternity. All Israel will be grafted in one day. Mary's evangelistic focus is on Israel. Is Israel even on our radar when we think about lost people? Well, let's review. This Advent season, let's not make evangelism any more complicated than it has to be. Like Mary, receive the good news of the coming king. And like Mary, relay the good news of the coming king. Next week, we have the privilege to hear from Guy Runkel, who will open the word for us as we step into week four of Advent. And we're going to look at the account of the birth of John the Baptist and Zechariah's unique prophecy known as the Benedictus. You're not going to want to miss it. Please pray for our brother this week as he prepares to preach. In fact, right now, Let's do that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the preaching ministry in the life of this church. We recognize, Lord, that the, the power is not resident in a particular person. The, the power is resident in the word of God brought home to our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, week to week, no matter who's up here in the pulpit, I pray, Father, that we would be attentive to your word, not just in listening, not just being hearers of the word, but as we leave this place, we want to be doers. Lord, we, we don't want to walk away from this sermon hardened another turn toward 
the worship of Jesus or evangelistic intensity. Lord, soften our hearts this season. Let us see the simplicity of this two-beat rhythm. Like Mary, oh, grant that we would receive the good news of the King afresh this season. And like Mary, may we move with haste. May we not lose a minute to open our mouths to say a good word for King Jesus. May we relay the good news of the Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.